The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. If you've been here at Westminster at least since last fall, you know that as the rest of the faculty in the fall, we're bringing morning devotions from the gospel according to John. Dr. Howell Jones was bringing us some wonderful rich meditations from 1st John. Um, I'm sort of going to imitate him, but we're going to go to 2nd John, that short uh, one-chapter letter, and uh, we're going to be focusing on that in actually five meditations throughout this semester. So I would invite you to turn to 2nd John. I'm going to read the entire epistle, all 13 verses. Our focus today will be on verses 1 through 3. You're now God's word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, And does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this brief word from the elder, the apostle, but really from the spirit of truth who has given us these words through him. Words of encouragement, words of warning, words of counsel, words that direct us to Jesus who is the truth. Give us receptive hearts and ears in these few moments we have to meditate uh, on the beginning of this wonderful uh, little epistle given to us uh, from the very voice of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second John, verses 1 through 3. Actually, I have to confess to you that if you're looking for commentaries on Second John from the library, they're probably all sitting on my desk downstairs. Just <clears throat> I've been doing my homework. 
And what I've found is that commentators often invest more words total in interpreting two words in verse 1 than in the whole rest of the epistle, the words elder and lady. Because it goes into the introduction. Who's the elder? Who's the author? And then who's the addressee? Who's the lady? We're not going to spend time on that. Uh, we're just, I'm going to stipulate, for the record, uh, what I believe is the consensus, at least among Bible-believing uh, uh, biblical scholars, New Testament scholars. The elder is the author of Third John, who also identifies himself in that way there, but also of First John. Stylistically, we see that. Thematically, we see that. Uh, and therefore also of the gospel according to John, again, in terms of style and theme, and obviously in terms of the consensus of the tradition in the early centuries of the church. John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, John, who with his brother James and Peter were in the, the inner three uh, among the twelve. That's our author. Not shocking for an apostle to call himself an elder. Peter does the same in 1 Peter 5, they are shepherds of the flock as well as having that unique calling to bring the word of God and to testify to the resurrection. What about the lady? There's more debate about that, but I think the consensus is that this is a personification of a local congregation, and her children are the members of that congregation, especially when you get to verse 13 and John extends a greeting from the children of your elect sister. It suggests that uh, he's in a different congregation, and he's bringing greetings from the members of that congregation. It's kind of an extension of the way other passages of Scripture speak of the church as the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5 and the book of Revelation. So it's counsel to the whole church. Two pieces of backdrop, quickly, background that we need to understand. Uh, one, as you can begin to hear in verses uh, 8 and 9 in particular, no, 9 and 10, um, Teachers are circulating among the churches and the cities. Uh, and uh, those teachers claiming to convey the word of God, uh, how are they to be cared for? Uh, the right biblical uh, godly thing is for Christians to receive them and give them hospitality, receive them into their homes, and in so doing to give them a kind of a, a credibility, a platform, an endorsement for their teaching. Third John is all about that. The elder writes to Gaius and he says, you're doing a great job because you receive the brothers who have gone out for the sake of the word, the truth, and uh, they don't accept the support of the non-Christians. They depend on believers, and you're doing a, a marvelous job in doing that. So that's, that's part of it. Now, Second John is written to a congregation and its members who also are inclined to give hospitality to teachers who bear the name of Jesus. They need some counsel about how to discern True teachers from false. And that brings us to the other piece of background, and that really relates back to 1 John, as, as Dr. Jones began to show it to us. In 1 John, John is dealing very much with a very dangerous heresy that denies the incarnation of Christ. He says, for example, in chapter 4, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know... The Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, but is the spirit of the Antichrist. Well, you heard it in 2 John, the very same issue in verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out and do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. 
The one who denies that is a deceiver and an antichrist. If they don't abide in the teaching of Christ, John goes on to say, if they don't bring this teaching, don't even enter, let them come into your house. Don't, don't welcome them. Don't uh, open your guest room to them. Uh, rather, you know, lock the deadbolt. Don't let them in. And that sounds a little extreme. We'll get to that passage. But uh, John cares that much about truth. Okay, backdrop. Okay, now, first three verses, as you see, very much like the opening of virtually any Hellenistic letter in the first century, author, recipients, and then a blessing, verse 3, a pronouncement of, in Hellenistic letters, generally well-wishing, but here, this is a Christian apostle speaking, it's much more than that. It's more than even a, a prayer for blessing, it's a promise of blessing. And it previews the whole Christ-centered message of the entire letter. We have just so few minutes. I just want to focus on two things here in these three verses. Uh, to show you that what, what John is doing, what, what God the Holy Spirit is doing through John, is basically saying to us, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. I know that's about marriage, but uh, John is showing us that God has tied, bound things together that we must not separate. Truth and love, and then truth in proposition and truth in person. Let me, let me elaborate on those. Truth and love. Uh, you hear that word truth four times in these three verses, and the word love twice. And in the first and the last of those times, you notice how closely they're linked. The lady and her children whom I love in truth, verse 1, Verse 3, the blessing of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ the Father, Son, in truth and love. Truth and love belong together. That's John's preview of what he's going to, the point he's going to make in the next uh, three, four verses, where he talks about the woman's children, the members of the church, walking in truth, which means obeying God's commandment. And that commandment is what? Love one another. To walk in truth is to love one another. We'll come to that more next time. But truth and love, they belong together. Truth and love belong together. But too easily in the history of the church, they've been pulled apart, including in the modern time. Some value love and devalue truth. They think of love as a kind of an undiscerning affirmation that makes people feel good and happy and increase their self-esteem. And they see too much concern about truth as narrow-minded, hair-splitting, maybe even an arrogant insistence on being right, no matter who gets hurt in the process. In the 20th century, in the very foundational movement of the North American ecumenical movement, there was a slogan running around, Doctrine Divides, Service Unites which is another way of saying truth divides, let's just love and work in love. And we can do that together even if we don't agree on very much in terms of biblical content. So some mistake undiscerning affirmation for love. That's not biblical love, but that's what they would take it to be and value that above all. On the other hand, some 
well, maybe probably folks mostly like us who gravitate to a place like Westminster with a robust doctrinal commitment to the great truths of the Reformation in all of their rich complexity. Some value truth, and although we never devalue love, we really, really, really value truth and uh, maybe turn now and then the quest for precision and truth with into a, a kind of an excuse to be clever, maybe even cruel in our put-down of those who are less illumined than we are. We love truth. And love, well, it's good. I mean, it's important. The Bible talks about it. But, you know, truth above all. And when we do that, of course, then we reinforce the stereotypes from the other side who say love is all that matters and if you go far, too far with truth, you become really, really ugly as people. John cares deeply about truth, no question about that. He's prepared to say when a deceiver comes to your door and he doesn't confess the incarnation, lock the deadbolt, don't let him in. But John cares so much about truth out of love, out of love for the church. As he says, I don't want you to lose the reward, to lose what we've worked for in your heart and in your life. As we pursue truth, as we discuss truth, as we debate truth, that commitment to God's truth can never be divorced from love. In fact, John says, I love you, and everybody who loves and knows the truth loves you because of the truth. It's because we have so much in common that we love one another. We can never divorce truth from love or love from truth. Keep them together. Now let's think more about truth. I said four times in these three verses, truth. I love in truth all who know the truth because of the truth that is in us in truth and love. In verse 1, those who know the truth clearly are those as he will say later on, who are abiding in the teaching of Christ, who are confessing that Christ has come in the flesh. It's propositional truth. This is what you must believe. This statement accurately reflects reality. God has bound together truth in proposition with truth in person, and we must not separate them. So there's a strong commitment to truth as it's articulated and spoken in words. Actually, even in verse 3, John is already hinting that he's getting at truth as it's articulated in words, in propositions, in statements, when he describes Jesus Christ as the Son of the Father. It's the only place in the New Testament that that ex- specific reference, description is used of Jesus, although obviously throughout the Gospel of John, he speaks of God as his Father, as he does in the other Gospels. And throughout, we hear of the blessings that come to us through the Father and the Son. But here the Father's Son, and I I suspect that John wants to send that signal right up front that it's so crucial to know the truth and embrace the truth and confess the truth about Jesus because that's the only way you can come to the Father. John says in 1 John 2, 22-23, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No doubt those teachers who were denying that Jesus was the Christ come in human flesh would not have thought they were denying the Father, but he says, in fact, they are. 
He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Confessing and believing correct Christology is absolutely essential to having communion with God the Father. Truth and proposition. But you know, John would be just as pleased if instead of saying confessing and believing true Christology, I were to say confessing and believing Christ truly. Because he's not going to separate the proposition from the person. In fact, the way he uses the truth, especially as he moves from verse 1 into verse 2, suggests that he really wants us to see in the proposition the portrait of the person. All who know the truth love the woman, the lady, and her children because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Intriguing to read the commentators. They all are kind of flirting with the idea, this sounds really personal. So they will talk about John's um, personification of the truth. He's almost treating truth as something personal. Well, I'm going to dare to go one step further. I have not found a commentator who agrees with me yet, so take this with a grain of salt. But I'm going to suggest that the truth in verse 2 really is John's way of referring specifically to the person of Jesus. I've got a bunch of evidence here, and we have no time, but just let me throw out a few things for you to think about. First of all, in 1 John, in the very introduction, he begins by talking about the life whom we touched and saw and handled. Remember that? And that eternal life who was with the Father was manifested to us. Isn't he really saying life stands for, represents, names Jesus, the eternal Son? He's echoing the prologue of his gospel. In him was life. He was with the Father. The word was with the Father. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the upper room discourse, as we sang this song this morning, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In 3 John 12, that verse toward the end of 3 John, uh, John tells Gaius that the bearer of the letter, Demetrius, is one to whom everybody testifies, and the truth itself, maybe himself, testifies on Demetrius' behalf, that he's faithful. It could be saying just, Demetrius is a faithful gospel preacher and you can hear what he's preaching, but, but isn't it a little more than that? The truth is taking the witness stand on Demetrius' behalf. And then in John's gospel, again in the upper room discourse, John 14, 15, 16, Jesus says, the spirit of truth will abide in you and be with you forever. John 14, verses 16 and 17. And then Jesus says at other points, I will come to you and I and my Father will be with you. John 14, 18 and verse 23 and 15, 5. Aren't we talking about the one who is truth here? The truth is in us and will be with us forever. Now whether or not I persuaded you in these last two minutes... Um, at least they gave you some evidence to think about. But at least, at least, we can acknowledge that what John is saying here, and when we get to the substance of the confession in verse 7 that he says is absolutely non-negotiable, it's about a proposition that concerns a person. And again, the temptation is to divide propositions from the person 
of the living God. Some would devalue propositional statements. You know that in theological discussion. Uh, Some out of a kind of a misguided mysticism that imagines we can engage the person of Christ without the interference of of the Bible's inoffensive, sometimes embarrassing tendency to label some things as true and other things as false. Uh, We can engage Jesus one-on-one. Don't worry about what the Bible says. Uh, On the other hand, maybe again, our temptation is to react and focus a lot on the propositions and discuss them and debate them and maybe just occasionally lose sight of the reality that the propositions matter because they are about the one who is the truth. Because they bring us into an understanding of the truth as the spirit of truth does his work. So John says you only come to know God the Father through the truth, who is Jesus the Father's Son. And you really know the Father's Son as your conception of him is sovereignly shaped by the specific words that the Spirit of Truth breathed out in Scripture. Confessions such as Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. What God has put together, let not man separate. God has joined truth and love, grounding our love for him and each other in the truth of his son and the gift of his son for our salvation. Don't separate them. God has joined truth in proposition with truth in person. Jesus the son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's explore the propositions revealed in the written word, seek to formulate the truth in our own words, in our own understanding, Uh, so that they become our own for the sake of knowing the truth who is the person, Jesus Christ, and in so doing, coming to have richer, deeper fellowship with the Father as well. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that uh, you will uh, give us grace, as John assures us here, grace, mercy, Peace will be with us from you and your Son in truth and in love. Help us to grow in our grasp of the truth and grow in our capacity to love. Help us to explore the truths revealed in your word for the sake of the truth who is revealed and portrayed by your Spirit in those truths. Jesus himself. Deepen our fellowship with him as we delve into your word, which is truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.